0: The following is a ministry of City Life Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We hope you find this teaching encouraging and instructive. Perhaps you are currently a follower of Christ or are perplexed, skeptical, or even antagonistic to Christianity. Regardless, we would love to hear from you. Please contact us at info at Thank you for listening and please contact us if we can be of service to you. Peace be with you. number of years ago I was sitting in a Toronto subway car directly across from the sliding doors reading a book by James Montgomery Boyce called God the Redeemer. And I was holding the book up intentionally so that everybody could see the title. At one of the stops, a university student, rollerbladed loudly into the subway car, plopped herself down right beside me, totally out of breath. When she calms down, she pulls out a book from her bag and starts to read. I look over and I say to my new guest, what are you reading? And she says, something quite similar to what you're reading. I said, well, what is it? She said, I'm reading about the philosophy of spirituality. Oh, I said, what's it saying? Hoping she would ask me the same thing about my book. And so she, in a few sentences, explained to me what it was saying, and then she said, what's your book saying? And I quietly said to the Lord, thank you. (laughs) So then I started to share a little bit about what it was saying in the book by Boyce. And four minutes later, the subway stopped, the doors opened, and she rollerbladed out. And I decided in that moment that I need to be ready to tell the story in four minutes. I need to be ready to tell the story in four minutes. You need to be ready to tell the story in four minutes. Our text today is Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Paul is sitting in the prison in Jerusalem, and it says in 2311, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So kind of like a Netflix series, that scene was the first scene with which the series began. The next scene has the words written over it, ten days earlier. We now go back to 2117, not the year, but the chapter and verse. 2117, Paul and his uh, friends, including Luke, who's writing this account, arrive in Jerusalem. The next day, Paul meets with James and the elders of First Presbyterian Church in Jerusalem. Now, you're laughing, but the fact of the matter is that the elders here are called, as I've shown you in previous weeks, Presbyteroi, from which we get the word Presbyterian. It just simply means it's a church that is directed, governed Uh, led by a multiple number of presbyteroi, or translated, elders. James, this is the disciple of Jesus, the brother of John, one of the three of the close circle of Jesus. James is the president, or the moderator, of these elders you should also know about First Presbyterian Church Jerusalem that uh, it is, by this point, a megachurch. Uh, you might remember how it got started, 3,000 conversions all at once, from Jews from about 15 different nations, all gathered in Jerusalem, and suddenly, overnight, you have a congregation of 3,000 people uh, that's highly multicultural, and this church has grown. Maybe by now it's 10,000 people large. So commentators speculate that they probably had, sort of like the Jews would think of government, about 70 elders. And Paul now meets with James, the president of the elder board, and these elders. And he reports what God has done. Amongst the Gentiles. Now that would refer to, you know, the last time that Paul would have seen James and a few elders would have been in 49 A.D. at the Jerusalem Council, the first general assembly of the church, and um, Acts 15. So since his travelings, Acts 16 through 20, which we have pursued and and followed here uh, in, in our series through Acts, he is now giving a report to the elders of all the great things that God has done. And their response is to praise God, but they then start to voice their anxiety over a rumor that's been floating around, we're now in 2121, that Paul has been telling people, particularly Jews, wherever he travels, that they don't need to abide by the Jewish ceremonial customs anymore. Like, The Jews who follow Jesus as their Messiah don't need to circumcise their sons anymore. Now it's a rumor that Paul's been telling Jewish believers this all around the world. And, And so what these elders are now going to say, what they say to Paul is they want him to prove that the rumor is wrong. How is he supposed to do that? Well, they say there are four men who have somehow contracted some ceremonial uncleanness, and so they need to go now through a purificatory rite in the temple. And on the seventh day, um, they are supposed to have their heads shaved according to the Nazarite vow of... Numbers 6. And, and this is where I start getting ticked off. Paul is supposed to pay for their haircuts. The idea is the Jews would realize that Paul is still observing and teaching the Jewish ceremonial law and would understand it was just a rumor, but it wasn't true. And all would be well. Now, I already told you I got ticked off the first time I actually realized what they're telling Paul to do here. And now I'm going to explain to you why I got ticked off. If I were Paul, I would have said, hold on a second. I am paying for this? I'm just a poor missionary, right? You guys are a mega church. You pay for it. It was your idea. And the other thing I would have said is you're actually giving in to their legalistic approach to the Christian faith. You're actually letting them take what we would call today a matter of indifference where people are allowed in the church to have different opinions on something and you're making it into a matter of an absolute. That's wrong! Elders, don't you realize that I'm going to write a letter to the Romans about that and I'm going to talk about the matters of indifference and and in fact 1500 years later under King James in England they're going to start putting chapter numbers to what will be my letter to the Romans, and you'll see it in chapter 14? Don't you realize this is contrary to the freedom of the gospel? And some of you are probably thinking right now, Beck, you get so ticked off about things, I think I'm canceling my counseling appointment with you. All right, I understand. And Paul, you know, what what does Paul do? Well, maybe you want a counseling appointment with Paul because he's much more peaceable about this. He's in a conciliatory mood. He responds in the vein of 1 Corinthians 9.20, which says, you know, to the Jews, I was as a Jew, you know, I'll be all things to all men if I could just save some. So the next day, Paul starts to do what... The elder board asked him to do. Seven days later, the Jews recognized Paul in the temple. He had just shorn his head too. Now, how they recognized him, I don't know. I've seen pictures of some of you guys with shorn heads when you had hair, and I frankly can't recognize you. But they recognized Paul even without any hair on his head. And they immediately start yelling. They grab him. They make accusations. We're now in twenty one twenty eight. Uh, the first accusation is a half-truth. The second accusation they make is an untruth. They drag him out of the temple. They decide they want to kill him. There's a huge riot going on in Jerusalem. And it comes to the ears of the Tribune of Jerusalem. That's the commander of the Roman troops who are safeguarding peace in Jerusalem because Israel was, of course, part of the Roman Empire. So the Tribune is told about a riot going on, and so he goes with a large group of soldiers uh, to to quiet the riot. And... um, Uh, He stops the Jews from beating Paul, and he arrests Paul. And I'm thinking, arrest him? He didn't do anything wrong, but they arrested him, right? And then the, the tribune has Paul dragged back to the barracks, and all the while the Jews are still screaming, away with him, away with him! Which they, by the way, screamed... The same words about Jesus 30 years earlier. And so, Paul now turns to the tribune and he asks if he could say something, but it is it is so loud the the violence is getting really bad and and what i'm what i'm trying to say here is that the whole plan of james and the 70 elders just backfired so i was right it was a total fiasco even the great New Testament scholar of the previous century, F.F. Bruce, made this comment, we might doubt the wisdom of the elders. All right, you may want to put your appointment with me for counseling back into your calendar, because I was right, I was right. This is no way to handle the rumor. on the other hand I think I was totally wrong because what we discover is that this was exactly how God wanted this to work and happen God sovereignly was directing every step and every event surrounding Paul because do you remember twenty three eleven? He says, Jesus says to Paul, as you testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is all part of God's way of getting Paul from Jerusalem to Rome. And sometimes God's ways with us look so contrary to our human wisdom. but he's always in control. And now Paul does turn to the tribune and he asks him if he can say something to the Jews. And the tribune suddenly realizes, wait, Paul, this guy just talked to me in Greek. And now, and, and now he, he says, whoa, I thought you were... You were that Egyptian criminal who started a revolt. That's why I arrested you. And we're saying, wow, all this stuff was done to Paul out of ignorance, out of misunderstanding, out of rumors. So he grants to Paul that he may say something to the Jews. Now Paul addresses the whole crowd in Hebrew, and they're all going like, wow, Hebrew. And so they all get quiet and listen. And we're now in chapter 22, and Paul is telling them his story. He even mentions Stephen. Remember him? Back in Acts chapter 7, the first martyr, and Paul had a hand in his death I think the guilt feelings, though known, knowing that he had been forgiven, must have just stuck with him, or at least the bad memory of how he used to persecute Christians, even put them to death. And he even says that here to the Jewish crowd. He says, I persecuted people of the way to the death. And then he talks about how on the road to Damascus, Jesus suddenly encountered him, and Paul was, soon as he mentions the Gentiles to the Jewish crowd, we're back to a huge riot. And they all start screaming and yelling and throwing dust in the air because as far as they're concerned, that this thing about the Messiah, that's our religion, that should not go to people who are not Jews, who are like dogs who don't know how to live well like we do, who are indecent and immoral. It should never go to those people. It should be for us only. And it's a huge riot again. And so the tribune orders Paul back into the barracks. The next day, we're now in chapter 23, Paul is standing before a Jewish council, and even that turns violent. So the tribune has to step in again. He has Paul taken back to the jail. And I'm thinking at this point, Paul, he has been through so much in the last 10 days. He must be black and blue all over. He must have cuts and bruises everywhere. Maybe even a few broken bones. The guy is a mess. He's been mistreated for his faith. And he's now sitting in jail all by himself. One commentator made the statement, Paul never needed Jesus more than in this moment. And guess what? Acts chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him, and said take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in jerusalem so you must testify also in rome beloved i want to leave you with two points to take home from this text twenty-three, first of all every time you are in service for jesus jesus is at your side literally These words are, the Lord stood by him. The Lord stood at his side. He spoke to him. He said, take courage, Paul. He stood at his side. The German commentator to the book of Acts, Deboer, at this point says, where was James where were the elders and that's why I was so ticked off as I was reading this because I was asking myself the same question where were they they had advised Paul into this mess in the first place why were they not sticking up for him now why were they not showing up for him now and you can feel a little bit the pain that paul must be feeling when you read 2 timothy 4:16 through 17 this is what paul wrote to timothy as he thought back on sitting in jail at this time 2 timothy 4:16 at my first defense no one came to stand by me But all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. He's fighting the root of bitterness, can you tell? But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. The beautiful thing about this is that while those who should have showed up didn't show up, Jesus showed up. Because Jesus cares for his own, because Jesus cares for those who have followed him into the persecution that happens when we as followers of Jesus start to open our mouths and to tell our stories of how we have encountered Him. You know, it's the same thing that happened with Joseph. Joseph was in prison. Remember that back in Genesis? He had interpreted the dream of Pharaoh's cupbearer. And... The cupbearer was released from jail and before he walks out the door, Joseph says to him, would you please remember me before Pharaoh? And the cupbearer says, yeah, sure, I will. And Genesis 40 ends with these words, the cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him and there he was for 2 years all alone and forgotten but in genesis 39:11 it says the lord was with joseph i can verify that through my own life story This may sound a little strange to you, and I've told very, very few people this, because I know that a lot of people would say, okay, he is weird. But on April 24th, 2010, three days after a major heart attack that almost cost me my life, as I'm lying in the hospital bed in Germany, wondering, am I gonna die soon? Is there more to life? Is it all over? Jesus came to the side of my bed. And he spoke to me like he did to Paul. I didn't hear a voice, but I heard every word in my heart to the point that I even got out a notebook and started to take notes. And over several hours, Jesus was telling me in that hospital that there were two things he wanted me to do before he takes me home. One, he wanted me to start a church that would maybe be called something like All Nations or something like that where 50% of the people in it would be Germans and 50% of the people who would be in it would be all the nationalities the Germans don't like. And that this church was to be like the imperfect and sinful replica of the perfect and sinless church in heaven, where people of every tongue, tribe, and nation are gathered in intercultural reconciliation through the power of the cross of Jesus. It became known as the Mosaic Church because God sent all these refugees from the Middle East into that church in Frankfurt. We had hundreds of conversions of Muslims to the faith in Jesus. We would baptize 20 at one shot in a worship service. And it was just the most amazing adventure that God ever put Susan and me on until, of course, we came to this church for a new adventure. But that was the first thing. And the second thing he told me to do was he wanted me to start an institute That would focus on lay people, men and women, who have no opportunity for theological education, but it would be able to train them to start multicultural churches wherever they live or work. Unless you think it was just a conversation Jesus had with me, the fact of the matter is that institute exists today. It's called Mosaics Academy. And just two days ago, I was sitting in a Zoom conference with my, my friend, my dear friend, the Sudanese guy, Yasser Eric, who, who is one of the foremost evangelists in the Arabic world today. He had just come back from Saudi Arabia, and he said, Stephen, you won't believe this. I just baptized several believers in Mecca. And the Mosaics Academy is exactly what they need online because there's no other opportunity for them to be discipled and to be taught how to multiply their faith through planting new churches. Now, the fact of the matter is, Jesus does this. He he comes to us. He speaks to us. And he does so especially in those moments where we are beside ourselves or confused or discouraged and we don't know the way forward. And he says to Paul here, take courage, which is another way of saying be confident in doing what you are afraid to do. Be confident in doing what you are afraid to do. And then he says, for as you testify of me in Jerusalem, so you will testify of me in Rome. This accounts for Paul going through the further hearings in Acts 23 through 26 with Felix, with Festus, with Agrippa and Bernice, the two years of imprisonment, the long, dangerous journey to Rome in Acts 27, and every step of the way, the Paul we encounter is a man of calmness and confidence. And it's because Jesus promised, as sure as I am here standing by you, The way you are testifying for me in this place is the way you're going to testify me in the next place. People, you are part of the Holy Spirit's apostolic movement to people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. So the next time that someone plops themselves down beside you, maybe in a subway or train car, and asks you, what do you believe remember 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 the lord is with you i just saw a video the other day of a little boy standing in front of a pool in salt lake city zoo when suddenly out of the water comes lunging a polar bear with his mouth wide open And it looks like he is ready to take off the head of this little boy. And the boy in the video doesn't move. He's totally calm. Because there was a thick glass between the boy and the polar bear. See, Jesus is like that thick glass between people who might devour you for your faith and you. So therefore, the next time somebody asks you for the hope that is in you, remember, Jesus is with you. That in the moment and every time that you are in service for him, he is there at your side. And the second thing I want to leave with you today is, so go on and just tell your story about Jesus. You notice that Jesus says here to Paul that he is to testify, he says, about me. And there's so many things we love to testify about to people. Our hobby horses the things that we feel people need to wise up to so they don't make such a mess of things. And Jesus is saying, just testify about me. I'll talk more about what that means to testify about Jesus next Sunday. But here's the thing. Paul had just done that in Acts chapter 22. He had just told the Jews his story. In fact, this is what's so cool. In the book of Acts, we have three times the account of Paul's conversion. There's something important about a conversion story that Luke thinks he's got to tell it three times. Now, here's the important thing to notice. The three times that Paul's conversion is recounted in the book of Acts, there are a few details in each account that are different or added in comparison to the other accounts. But the structure of the accounts is always the same. There is, like we saw in chapter 22, there's the pre-conversion period where Paul is, talks about his education, how much he knew, but it all didn't matter in the end. He was in a crisis. There are longings uh, unfulfilled. That's the first part. Then the second part is his actual conversion. How did he encounter Jesus? And then there's the post-conversion account. What difference does it make? Now, why am I telling you this? Because that's the way you can tell your story. Which brings me to my conclusion and a homework assignment. You didn't know this but this is actually the first part of a two-part evangelism training seminar that we decided instead of holding it on a Saturday where 20 of you would show up, I would just preach it when all of you show up. So here we go. Your first homework assignment is this. Write out your story as a four-minute presentation. Parents, you can do this with your kids. Have yourself write out the pre-conversion story in one minute's time. What were your longings? What, What started you getting interested in the things of the Lord? Then, how were you converted? Who talked to you? What did they say? Why did you decide to give your life to Jesus? Then move on to the the last part, which is what difference has it made in your life? How has it changed you? What new hope can you now live with? Give the pre-conversion account, the conversion account, and the post-conversion account, and memorize it. And you say, well look, I'm a covenant child. I never had a conversion. I've always grown up with knowing Jesus. right, Then Imagine if you were without Jesus, if you'd grown up without Jesus, what would have been the, the longings you would have had? What, what are the things going on in your, or that went on in your life that also go on in the lives of those with whom you're sharing your story? Talk about why Jesus is so wonderful that you would want to give your life to him. And then talk about how it's made a difference in your life, and how you're growing, and the new things that you're discovering as you follow Jesus. Pre-conversion, conversion, conversion, post-conversion. Your homework assignment is to come up with your own four-minute story. And the second homework assignment is this. Write down the names of three people that you know who do not know Jesus. Got it? Three people that you know who do not know Jesus. Kids, you can do this as well. Three people that you know you're going to come in contact with in the next six months. And then pray three times a week for those three people that they will come to faith in Jesus. And when you meet up with them, you'll be ready to tell them your four-minute story. Because the fact of the matter is, one of these days, what happened to me is going to happen to you, and you will wish you had written down your story in four minutes and were ready to present it to that person. You say, I'm scared to do that. I'm scared to share my faith. Then revert to the first point. Every time you are in service for Jesus, remind yourself, Jesus is at your side and because he is just tell your story lord jesus help us as we follow you in this apostolic train to people of every tongue tribe and nation to take courage to do what we're afraid of doing but to do it because we know you are with us Open our mouths and speak the words. And help us, Lord, to become people who rejoice in our stories and how they fit into your great story. And we do thank you, Lord, that you have made our stories part of your story. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a ministry of City Life Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We hope you were encouraged by this teaching. Thank you for listening and please contact us at info if we can be of service to you. Peace be with you.